This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the next picture show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps here again with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, and Tosh Robinson. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Andre Tarkovsky's 1979 film Stalker, a science fiction journey into a strange, frightening, eerily beautiful, and highly symbolic landscape. In this episode, we'll consider its modern-day descendant, Annihilation, directed by Alex Garland. This is Garland's second film as a director and a follow-up to his 2015 film Ex Machina which explored the most extreme implications of artificial intelligence. Here, Garland seems more concerned with the farthest reaches of biology rather than technology, with a side interest in how the human mind constructs reality and what happens when the world stops making sense and we literally can't believe our eyes. The setup is enough to make fans of Stalker do a spit take. After some kind of extraterrestrial incident, an area in the American South has become a quarantined space known as the Shimmer, so-called for the glowing opaque light that encases it. Expeditions have been sent into it, but they mostly haven't come back. Mostly. As the film opens, a biologist named Lena, played by Natalie Portman, mourns the apparent death of her soldier husband, Kane, played by Oscar Isaac. But unexpectedly, Kane returns one night, only to soon fall ill, an incident that results in Lena being drawn into the next expedition into the Shimmer, one led by a psychologist played by Jennifer Jason Lee, that also includes a paramedic played by Gina Rodriguez, a physicist played by Tessa Thompson, and a surveyor played by Tuva Novotny. And though the all-female makeup of the party seems significant, it never draws explicit comment. Once inside, they start making their way to the lighthouse that served as ground zero for the alien incursion. And then they notice this landscape has changed from the world they knew, first subtly, then drastically. And with these changes come new dangers and new discoveries. Each is unveiled to us as if we were part of the expedition itself, encountering sights and sounds that don't square with reality. In a film determined to disarm and unnerve viewers through strange sights and sounds, explaining little but handing it a lot as it pushes toward a finale that only deepens the mystery of what's come before. We'll discuss all this and more after the break. Let me see him. He was extremely ill. You have to tell me where he was, what he was doing. It was his decision to go in. It's something they termed the shimmer. We've sent in drones and teams of people, but nothing comes back. But something has. You're a biologist. You served in the military. If I knew what happened, I could save his life. The boundary's getting bigger. It's expanding. We're talking cities, states. You need to know what's inside. So do I. It's beautiful. Check this out. It's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation. Anything interesting in there? No. Sharks have teeth like that. Not possible. You can't crossbreed different species. What is it? The soldiers on the last expedition. They went crazy. Or something in here killed them. Something's come through the fence. Through the fence? 
It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. So, Annihilation. Lots to talk about. Who wants to kick it off? I guess I will. I've really loved this movie, mm-hmm. a, like a whole lot. Um, yeah. And I've that feeling has intensified as I've sat with it longer and longer. I really wish I had been able to see it a second time before this discussion, but it didn't happen. There's so much, there's a lot to discuss with this film, and I'm really tempted to just go right into the look of it, because that's honestly what sticks out the most in my mind for all of the mind-bending aspects of it like i'm just so drawn to the aesthetic of this movie as the Mm -hmm. kids say but there's probably a lot more to discuss so i'll open it up to everyone else to see if you loved it as much as i did uh yeah i absolutely loved it i don't think there's been a better science fiction film since maybe under the skin Mm-hmm. Uh, it's certainly a rival, but Arrivals it's on there. that it's on that that level. I, I was blown away by this film. I mean, I, I'm I like Ex Machina as many people do, but probably all of mm-hmm. us do. But this to me was like just another level. Uh, this is like Ex Machina was sort of the kagamusha to this film's Ron in terms of just a warm up to doing something truly audacious and you know extraordinary on every level. And I just think when you think about just. Even just the technical aspects of it, the cinematography, the sound, the visual effects. I mean, every aspect of this film has been so thoroughly imagined and so vivid. I mean, it's a wonderful feeling to be in this movie, which is that stalker feeling, again, of just like being immersed in a very strange place and then it getting stranger and more disorienting and more disturbing and more transfixing and beautiful as you enter further into it. It's just a great journey, this film. I think that the key line for me that kind of summed up my feelings with the movie was, I'll get the quote wrong, but it's when in one of the interrogation sequences when they're talking to Lena and she's sort of describing what she sees and the interrogator says, nightmarish. She's like, yes, but also beautiful. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's my feeling about this movie as well. It's, it's really stuck with me. Seeing this in Stalker, not to pat ourselves on the back, but both, both these movies are they just kind of just turn over in your mind for days after you see them. Oh no, <laughs> I look at Tasha and she's like, she's going to be the outlier here. I'm a little bit of an outlier. No, okay, go I home. really enjoyed the <laughs> experience of watching this movie. The ending was a bit of a turnoff to me because the ending to me fell into a place that I've seen over and over and over and over in horror movies. And I was left with a little, is that all there is? Do you mean specifically the sort of like, oh, the story's going to continue and people aren't quite what they seem. I mean, you can't be certainly be talking about the whole final sequence. No, with the doppelganger, no, no. The final right? okay. sequence is is unsettling and and fascinating. But the direction that it goes, I had a bit of an insight from a coworker today that has me reexamining my problems with that scene and finding it much more interesting. But I, I I feel like I had the opposite experience of Genevieve, where I really enjoyed the experience of watching this movie, and I felt very drawn into it, and I was really down with what it tried to do. And then the more I turn it over in my mind, the more I see the flaws, the more I see the elements that are thrown out and then not really drawn into to the weave of the story, the places where like the script feels like it's missing a little bit here and there. And there were just there parts of it that I keep thinking, but this this could have been handled 
in a way that would have pulled the idea together more strongly. And I feel like to some degree, the problem here is just that I know too much about the movie now. Like I've been commissioning and editing pieces about it. I've been writing about it. I've been reading about it. And I have all of this extra textual stuff, Scott Tobias. This is all a nightmare to me. <laughs> this, this re- this, this, is it a beautiful this, nightmare, this de- though? This devaluation of the film via extra textual materials. None of this is anything I approve of. But go, go ahead. <laughs> It's like, I don't know, sometimes I see a piece of like museum art that strikes me in a really emotional way. And I know the last thing I want to do is go read the little plaque next to it that has a bunch of buzzwords about how it's about the association of liminal space with the subconscious <laughs> or you yeah. know, whatever. <laughs> I I really did enjoy this movie a lot. I think it's really smart but aspects of it left me cold in a way that Stalker didn't. Oh, wow. You were yeah. not, not as warm to uh, this film as you were to Stalker. I love Stalker. I know. I'm just saying. I'm just, I, I mean, Tasha, I'm, I'm sure given everything you've read about this film, you have seen uh, that Garland has said, and many people have parroted, it is a film about self-destruction. Oh, yeah. And I'm on board with that description. I think, And I think that this film is about self-destruction in the same way that Stalker is about exploring utmost desire you know it's not a straight allegory it's more of a i guess a meditation with multiple interpretations and working metaphors within this very complex notion in in neither film i don't think there's anything that can be like definitively pinned down or attributed to a specific intent on the part of of the author so kind of what you're describing about feeling that there are elements that are like broached and not fully explored or like that just feels like it's part of that tone to me like garland has also said like he wrote this from a very dreamlike frame of mind or within a dreamlike framework and like i think that also kind of not absolves the film of like not answering certain questions but of maybe like presenting elements that don't seem connected in a very direct way to what is happening in the rest of the film and that's what I mean when I say that it just kind of grows richer to me the more I sit with it because I realize that there's more and more about it that like I didn't get and that I'm okay with the fact that I didn't get it and like that not getting it sort of feels like part of the experience of the film and and as with Stalker you know like these are films where ambivalence reigns and I don't always like that, but in both of these contexts, I did a lot. I really like the framework of any story that's fundamentally about you go to this place and whatever you find there is what you bring in with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's the Star Wars journey into the tree kind of thing, that exploration of the human subconscious that's just like whatever happens to you here it's kind of your fault. And we could also, by that token, we could have paired it with Solaris pretty easily as oh, well. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. A couple of people suggested that via yeah. our Twitter, too. Let me make a couple of points. One is that I think you really have to trust your experience within the thrall of the film itself. I mean, going back afterwards and kind of analyzing it and picking apart story elements and that sort of thing. I mean, there, there's obviously something to be gained from that, but don't underrate the actual physical, sensual experience of being in that theater, experiencing the movie, which is, which to me, in a film like Annihilation and Stalker, frankly, that's absolutely critical. How you feel when you're watching it is the most important thing. So there's that point. And then the other point about self-destruction, I feel like there's also an element of self-realization here, too. I'm thinking about one of my favorite scenes in the movie involves uh, Tess Thompson, and uh, mm. they, they've they've come to this what was once a, a town in which some of the people have become 
trees, basically. Mm-hmm. And or she, we just have plants growing in the shape of trees, which I actually think is a better yeah. explanation. It, for it, what's it's going heavily on. implied that she turns into one of the plant trees, and sure. like we see green sprouting out of her arms, but we don't actually. It isn't actually confirmed that that's what happens. Yeah, but I guess what I guess the point being though, she accepts her her fate mm-hmm. and it steers into that particular curve, and you can't really describe that feeling that she has as a self-destructive feeling. It's more of a coming to terms with yeah. with, with how how the world has changed and, and there's something kind of beautiful about the decision that she makes. It's not a horror like Tupa Novotny's death, for example. Yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee gets to the monologue about self-destruction and, and all the ways we self-destruct and how we let marriages fall apart and, you know, we let jobs kind of uh, drift away from us. And But it's also, I think there's also kind of a sense that maybe self-destruction is an illusion. Destruction itself is kind of an illusion. I mean, she's, Portman's character is a cellular biologist who opens with about how everything living came from a single cell. And, and, and this they go to this place where things merge that to our reality should not be merging. And kind of a coming back together of these things that, are, that have separated. Like maybe it's just the idea of, of separate organisms themselves is kind of an illusion. It's, it's kind of a disturbing and also in a strange way kind of heartening notion to deal with. And, and, and that ultimately manifested in that doppelganger at the end as well. It's, it's, I mean, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a film that benefits from being put on a spreadsheet and say this means this and this mm-hmm. means that. But that's, that's, those are things that were on my mind while I was watching this film and afterwards. In a film like this that operates both on a very intellectual basis, here are a bunch of symbols and here are, are the ways we are expressing it abstractly. I think there's a tendency to kind of like fight against itself, to fight against its own version of expression, because you do have some very specific, very clear things that he wants to communicate, but he also wants to communicate them in a very dreamlike way. This is a movie that is fundamentally about exposition. I mean, it's it's her telling the story to people. And it's her shaping the story the the way that she wants it to be shaped. We see that she's lying to them about certain things. But to me, there's a there's a, a kind of discrepancy there. Once you introduce the idea that she's telling them lies, that she's omitting things or altering things, suddenly the question becomes, well, what are we watching? Are we watching the truth or are we watching a lie she's inventing? How much of it is a lie? That last shot suggests that maybe more of it is a lie than than we think, or there are a lot of different ways to read that. And I think it's an interesting shot because it opens up up a lot of discussion. We we may as well talk about the end. I'll tell you how I read it. And Scott and I are talking about this immediately after the film, is that this is Lena, we've seen, whose her doppelganger has been destroyed and left behind in the shimmer, coming to talk to the Oscar Isaac character, who at this point is full doppelganger. There's kind of recognition of the balance between it's almost kind of like a yin yang sort of situation where there's a little bit of the shimmer in her, a little bit of, of humanity in him, and kind of finding the peace with that too. And I found it in, in a way kind of a disturbing, but also kind of optimistic, hopeful ending. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it's like 80 20 both ways. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. 80 20, 80 20 uh, uh, doppelganger to human ratio uh, uh, on each of them going, the other, going uh, yeah. one direction or the other. Yeah, I'm curious, Tasha, because I, I read your piece on The Verge about your, your problems with the ending or why you think the original ending would have been better. And you, what you just said about Lena lying, like, I'm guessing that you do not buy her assertion that they do not want anything. 
when the interrogator asks her like what do they want she's like i don't think they want anything like there's just a kind of a a sense that this is just like a state of being for whatever this phenomenon is so like to me the suggestion that the ending suggests that there is uh, more to come you know in that, that like horror movie way like is at odds with what the film tells us about what this phenomenon is i guess i'm curious what you think about that assertion on do you see part. a wholly ominous sort of oh they're going to take over kind of an invasion of the body snatchers kind mm-hmm. of kind of ending no it's the lack of any sense of intentionality i think that that left me disappointed i completely agree with you on kind of the reading of exactly what happened there i think that this is the quote-unquote real lena she's just she's been compromised as we saw within the shimmer you know it's the world within the shimmer has has cross bled into her dna she carries a part of the alien with her i think in terms of what you're saying there you're right it's as i say i've seen too many horror films that end with it was all a dream or was it she finally got clear or did she like that kind of thing and it it's often just such a a cynical gambit and so seeing it here for me I just found it off-putting. But it also, it opens up a host of possibilities without necessarily giving us the tools to imagine what that might mean. One of the things I talked about in that piece is just there's, I I love ambiguous endings. We also did a huge piece on uh, ambiguous endings of movies back at the AV Club, which I spearheaded because I love that kind of thing where a movie ends on a pregnant note and you find yourself asking like which of these two options, you know, the the way John Sayles Limbo ends, Mm -hmm. is somebody coming to rescue them or to kill them? Where is this going here i don't know what any of the options are i'm left in the same state as the alien i don't want anything i don't know what i want i don't know what it means and unlike i don't know rival where the big reveal kind of suggested huge things about the nature of of space and time and humanity here i kind of ended up going I felt like this story was leading up to something profound. And instead, I just ended up with a big flat question mark. I don't think it's threatening. I don't think it's satisfying. I I don't think it's either. I don't want to focus entirely on the ending because so much of the movie obviously uh, was so engaging, was so beautiful. And I don't want to underrate any of that. So, I mean, I do think with that we should talk about some of the other aspects of the film. What was your favorite part of the film, Tasha? (laughs) uh, Honestly, the final confrontation with uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh, the speech she gives Mm. when she said the word annihilation, like all of the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Mm. And what comes after that, which like I don't even want to describe it, like the the 2001-ness of it, Mm -hmm. the the ominous and the unknowability of it. I just I found it profound and beautiful and terrifying. I'm a basic person, so I like the screaming bear sequence because <laughs> uh, that 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 thing just scared the hell out of me. And God, what a creation! What a creation! This yeah. merging of of a bear like thing and the person it's devoured. I mean, my God, this the screams so bear uh, plus terror equals bearer. Oh my gosh, unbelievable! <laughs> so so I'm gonna keep it simple and say that was my favorite scene. What about you, Jeffy? Oh, we're we're doing favorite scenes. Yeah. I was I was just trying to get Tasha to onto, onto, onto a positive track. Yeah. You know? So what about you? I mean, I, I don't want to highlight a, a certain scene. I want to highlight uh, 
people, uh, specifically Gina Rodriguez and Tessa Thompson, both of whom I love. And what Gina Rodriguez in particular, I was thrilled to see her in this role and see her kill it. Very, very removed from what we're from, used to seeing. From yes, her. from Jane the Virgin, a show I, I love and which she is fantastic on. And she is fantastic in an entirely different way here. And I, I guess kind of going back to the Screaming Bear scene, that is also the scene where she kind of starts to come unraveled. Her character mm-hmm. com- becomes unraveled and it's killed. And I found that interesting because that scene highlighted the fact that she is the only member of this expedition that isn't a scientist. You know, she doesn't, I mean, she's an, she's an EMT, you know, like she, she definitely has her strengths that she brings to this expedition. But in terms of like a frame of reference for what's happening, she does not have the same tools to put it in, in your language, Tasha, that the rest of the expedition has. So I just thought that was a, an interesting element of that character that kind of flourished in that moment yeah and as i say i i I just think there's so much rich psychological potential in the whatever you take in with you is all that's there i and i I feel like it manifests in her like she's she's a soldier she sees attacks uh tessa thompson's character is she's a physicist she sees the patterns and the the refractions tuva novotny seems to see everything in terms of just kind of the layout of the land and jennifer jason lee sees the psychology but they all turn those into forms of their self-destruction that aren't there aren't like ironically pat and simplistic and obvious, uh, but I think they're there in a larger sense. In the same way, the characters in Stalker aren't like easy types. Uh, these characters aren't easy types, but you can sort of see where they're coming from in Just interesting ways. A s- small digression, but one thing that the book has in common with Stalker. That. Has, anyone, has anyone read the book? I started it, but I'm not that far into no, it. No, although I spent a good chunk of today editing a really detailed piece about it. And like, I think just briefly, we should talk about the fact that you, Genevieve, you mentioned that Garland wrote it in a very dreamy state of mind. Yeah. From everything I've read about this book, it's incredibly abstract. Mm-hmm. The characters are not given names. Uh, like like Stalker was the point I was going to yeah, make. As yeah. with Stalker. And, and it's also very different. I'm 50 pages in, it's already one wildly the book the movies are already wildly digressing from 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 the book and there's stuff that i don't since you're reading it i don't want to spoil it for you but there's stuff that happens in the book that literally came out of jeff vandermeer's dreams and have have no more logic to them than dreams do like literally transcribed out of dreams that he had so garland has said that he wanted to capture some of that and that's why the film feels the way it does i just i feel like it's a weird amalgam between dream logic and real logic. And there's a point where the real logic part for me doesn't hold up as much as the feeling of it does. Keith, we didn't get your favorite scene. You know, I'm, I'm going to back up to the Tessa Thompson scene uh, where mm-hmm. she sort of gives herself over to vegetation and her performance in that, the sort of the look in her eye and the resignation, but also the, as with everything else in the film, the way the visuals are carried out, is just so affecting And still on a dramatic level. It kind of, you know, it, it's a wonderful moment. It kind of gives me the chills, but just as a sort of like, I'm looking at something I should not be seeing. Like when you find, when you find mold growing in weird mm-hmm. places, like just the, the, you know, I kind of get the heebie-jeebies thinking about how this affects how they looked on the screen. It's so fascinating. I mean, that what's going on with her arm in that sequence is so close to, what was the, the horrible plant movie 
based on the it was like a best-selling the novel, the, the ruins. ruins. Yeah. So mm. that same thing happens in the ruins, and it's played for endless body horror. Yeah. But at the point where we see it, it's just not commented on. I think as a as a psoriasis sufferer, I'm, I'm, I'm more <laughs> I'm more prone to these to be, be affected by these things than others. Real real quick before we move on, and just pinging off that Tessa Thompson scene and what we were just talking about in terms of these characters as types. That moment combined with the moment earlier where uh, Tuva Novotny's character is talking about all the damage they all have, like they each have their own specific damage. She's an addict and she's a cutter and, you know, she's a loner slash has cancer, you know, and I've lost a daughter. So like Tessa Thompson's, you know, ascension to a higher plane, (laughs) I I guess, uh, whatever you want to call that moment. Like to me, it just felt like so tied to her character cutting and like I, I think Tuva's character says something about it. it's like it's not about wanting to die it's about wanting to be seen and like there's a lot of just like self-image stuff wrapped up in cutting and so because of that connection I started looking for like one-to-one correlations between the characters stated damage and how they died or disappeared you know and it's not quite there, which I'm very relieved about mm-hmm. because that, or if, or if it's there, it's it's too subtle for, for me to clock it. So I'm actually like relieved that that didn't happen. And it's just the fact that there is that sort of vague connection in Tessa Thompson's character, I think just like makes that a little more special without making it feel overly calculated. I wish that 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 particular theme had been drawn out just a little bit more in terms of making those characters a little more individualistic. One of the things I just uh, that makes me so low key happy about this film is the fact that it was an all woman team. Mm -hmm. And there's a like an established reason for that. We sent in military troops, which were, of course, all men and they disappeared. We're trying something different. And once they say that, it's never brought up again. Mm -hmm. It's never relevant again. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be just the fact alone that they don't have to make a deal out of it that you know having a a group of women operating together is just considered so normal and unworthy of comment delights me at the same time i wish that they had been more more characters and the fact that we find out about their individual damage through a straight up monologue from mm-hmm. one of them that's like here's a list of everybody's innermost secrets uh, it's going to take you take me 90 seconds to explain this. And a lot of it's never going to come up again. That, that did bother me a little bit. Yeah, it wasn't the the smoothest moment in the film. I yeah. felt like the explicitness and sort of heavy handedness is sort of a little bit of ballast to the rest of the film, which is explains nothing and goes <laughs> goes everywhere. You know, it, it is it is oddly out of tone with the rest of the movie. But but I almost feel like you kind of need to be grounded in, in a way. But maybe I'm just sort of justifying the questionable decisions of a movie I really love. On that note, let's wind this part down. We'll be right back after the break to talk about the connections between Stalker and Annihilation. We have to go back. We have to go back now. She's right. I I really don't know how much more right she has to be. Okay. And I agree with you. We should go back. Good. Okay, great. There we go. Okay, so the three of us can just pack up Hold on a minute. Hold on. We should go back, yes, but it took us, what, six days to get here? And the coast is two days away. You're saying that we get out by going deeper in? Yeah, if you like, yeah. Like? No, I don't like. This isn't some tactic to get us to the lighthouse, is it? I believe that the coast is the best route out. Okay? 
So now it's time for connections when we bring these films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I mean, we mentioned before, I, I don't know that Garland's explicitly said that he's influenced by Stalker, but, but you know, come on. He's uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. obviously influenced okay. um, by, by Stalker. The DP and, definitely said on uh, on Instagram, like there, he had an Instagram post, like the, it was like the one film reference point in the library. So. Yeah, I should I should follow. I like following DPs on, on, <laughs> on, on Instagram. Uh, Rachel Morrison's uh, uh, Instagram feed is really good. Oh, good um, they're also kind of mirror each other in some ways. In this case, we have, you know, in Stalker, it's an all-male party, uh, but there's sort of a, a framing device with the with the wife of, of Stalker, who becomes increasingly significant at the end. This one is an all-female party going into the Shimmer, uh, with Oscar Isaac's Kane playing a significant role at the at the end, but also at the beginning too. Is heavily he kind of gets his big moments at the beginning of the film. Uh, there's kind of a mirror that way. I mean, did that did that occur to you? Or, or yeah, I mean, the Stalker's wife also has a, a big moment at the beginning of the film where she's like writhing around on the ground, you that's know, true. which which actually kind of feels of like in the same vein as Oscar Isaac's character like falling apart and spewing mm-hmm. blood and you know there's a, a vulnerability to, to both of those characters in their introductions. And there's a feeling of bookending with both movies. You know, we we start with the bar, we return to the bar, you know, we've we're we're planning our journey, we've completed our journey and in Annihilation it's uh, we start with the interrogation, we end with the interrogation. There's just that feeling of kind of having come full circle in both cases. Yeah, maybe there's a need for the stalker and for Lena to go on this journey in order to be able to see their partner in a different and perhaps healthier and more productive light to understand them better to to recon- to to move forward with their lives in a way that they weren't capable of earlier right well, one of the things that's so beautiful about the ending to annihilation and maybe this is what we're talking about with the 80 20 split between the two is like when Lena encounters her husband at the beginning, he is an utter confounding and scary stranger to her. When the same, when she goes through this experience and encounters him at the end, um, there's a sense of understanding between the two of them and intimacy and perhaps love uh, that would not have been possible if she did not understand who he was and what he had gone through and what part of him remains what part of him is is something different and new and uh, and maybe that's the that's true of of, of stalker as well i mean we talked a little bit about stalker ending on a a hopeful note uh maybe both films do by talking about this we're also talking about how they both follow essentially the same structure which is you know begin on one one place plunge into another and, and come back but you come back not maybe not quite the same as when you went in oh you know how do how does the zone and the and the shimmer how do they compare to each other I think I, I one of the things I'd kind of tagged as a potential connection to discuss is kind of the mysteries of the movies, because both of them have these unanswered questions. But I think most of the mysteries in both cases could come down to what are actually the nature of the this mysterious area. What, if anything, does it want? What is it for? Was it created deliberately or accidentally? Is it what people think it is? It just, it seems to me that both of them, one is in theory, a place that grants your wishes. The other seems to be a place that tears you apart and remakes you possibly in an image you want and possibly not. But ultimately, they're both kind of uncaring, unfeeling 
as far as the movie shows. There's in both cases a, a kind of a vague suggestion that you can do with what you want, that there might be an intelligence behind it with intent, but we don't ever see that intelligence and we don't know for sure what that intent is. It's, it's whatever we map onto it. I mean, did, did you guys with either case, like did you buy the idea that the zone was created by God or aliens or whoever to make people happy? Did you buy the idea that the shimmer is a deliberate incursion by aliens is it just an accident? What did you end up thinking about those things? Not enough evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Annihilation feels more explicitly alien, uh, otherworldly to me than the zone does. Like, as I mentioned in the last half, like there's a, a definite sense of eeriness, but like things don't necessarily happen there the way that things happen in the, in the shimmer. So just in my reading, which is admittedly like my very first reading, and I still don't have a very good grasp on Stalker, it feels like there are imaginable scenarios in which there is a more mundane suggestion for what the zone is um, that there are not in, in the Shimmer. But in both cases, we don't know. And as far as like what I said about the Shimmer feeling alien, like there is also that specific line where the interrogator asks Lena, like, so it was aliens and she like doesn't answer because it's like, mm, you know, it's, it's otherworldly is that, you know, what we think of is pew pew aliens. Like, I don't know. One difference, too, is I think with the world of Annihilation, with the Shimmer, that there are a lot of things to discover and learn about in the world itself, in the Shimmer. Things that they encounter along the way, they have to sort of figure out how this place is working and, and how it's recombining DNA or whatever, and, and things are merging. And that, that's something that they discover about that world. Uh, the zone is just becomes almost this uh, psychic space that is eerie and otherworldly, but it's not a journey of discovery that they're making it only insofar as the, the discoveries that they're making are about themselves, their own motives and, and desires and that sort of thing. And so so Stalker is much more exclusively an internal journey than Annihilation, which is both external and internal. There is just a little bit of very specific parallel there in that, you know, it's heavily suggested that the zone has killed someone by granting him what he wants, that the Shimmer has killed a bunch of people in that they went in, they never came out, they never communicated in any way. And as we find out bit by bit, it, it definitely has killed people. So there's sort of that sense of it being lethal in both cases. There's also just a sense, like as I as I mentioned in the first segment, when I was talking about the stalker like rolling around in the grass, they both have that sense of like overripe fecundity of like nature run wild. Jeff, if you said something interesting on Twitter about, I can't remember how you put it, but like the, uh, the psychedelic. Oh, the, the biopsychedelia. Yeah. Biopsychedelia. Yeah. Now, like in theory, like I don't have a super high tolerance for like growths or, you <laughs> know, lots of very like small nubbiny things all, all over surfaces. So like I was... I shouldn't have responded to the look of the shimmer the way I did. But in that Twitter post, I highlighted uh, an artist I follow on Instagram who makes these Petri dish creations that look a lot, a lot, a lot like the aesthetic of the shimmer, um, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes because I love it and I want to share it. But um, so I think that may have like prepped me to love the aesthetic the, the way that I did. But um, I guess biopsychedelia is the best description I have for that that weird cross section of like mold and spores with beautiful prismatic 
color and yeah. Yeah, it's such a great and unique thing for us to find a movie both beautiful and horrifying at the same time that's a interesting balance for a, a film like Annihilation to strike. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, we're so used to alien-related movies being set in space in these either very sterile environments or very grungy environments, but like putting it in this kind of lush southern wilderness is uh, just really, it feels like a very different step. And the sound that place makes is, is another thing we could talk about. I mean, it is, it's very much the marsh, the marshes of the south that we know but there's a lot going on in the sound design. It's another thing it shares with Stalker, which has a very involved sound design uh, as well. And, and, and you know, ambient noise and the noise we talk about, about the um, train tracks and, and, and so on, plays such a major role in, in, in the character of that film. How do you see these films both using sound? Well, the music of both of them is very heavily leaning on like electronica to, mm-hmm. sure. to create unnatural noises that, that sort of like grate and soothe at the same time. The score of Annihilation reminded me so much of Under the Skin and mm-hmm. like Michael Levy's just kind of unsettling yet, yet overwhelming electronica. Stalker's score struck me as almost more lulling, almost more, more beautiful and, and comforting. But it's also, I mean, Tartofsky was very much going for an unnatural sound. Apparently, he actually had like an orchestral score and he, he, it wasn't unnatural enough. So he went back and created some of it with uh, like electronic instruments and then took real instruments and uh, like altered them electronically so they would sound like less natural and less comforting. But you know, in both cases, they're, they're being used to unsettle us and to kind of put us on edge. I think both films also kind of have a signature sound, like like mm-hmm. a specific cue, a sound cue. Um, in, in Stalker, it's that that noise. I, I mentioned it. I, I don't really have a great description for it, but it's in the railroad scene. And it appears again and again. It's kind of like a mechanical mm-hmm. cricket, or you know, um, I'll lay some yeah, in here and it, as producer. <laughs> but do you, do you guys know the sound I'm yes. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. talking about? And then in Annihilation, it's part of the score called The Alien, and it's actually a sound cue that appeared in the trailer. And then there's a fascinating article about this specific sound cue um, that we hear, that we end up hearing in the film during that doppelganger confrontation. That's sort of like almost vocalization, but not quite. On Slate, right? Yes, Slate. The article is Annihilation co-composer Ben Salisbury explains how that weird little melody wound up in the film's trailer. <laughs> it's just a little like four-note melody, mm-hmm. um, but it's a it's a really interesting interview if you're at all interested in sound design. But so just the highlighting of that little four-note melody and sort of the extent to which people have fixated on it in discussion of this movie feels analogous to me of that one noise and stalker that after one viewing i associate so strongly with the sound design of that movie i can't point to anything in stalker though that is as unsettling and and fixated on the oral quality as as the bear like mm-hmm. the sound design of that bear it's it's a grotesque cgi monstrosity it's it's creepy and unsettling whatever we've seen a lot of those the noises it makes that are like a combination of a monster's roars and the screams of the last person it it tore apart is just it's something i've never encountered before it, it's an intimidating sound that it's also the sound of an animal in distress i mm-hmm. mean the, i mean it's really scary but 
for reasons even beyond, I think, the sound of the woman's voice, it's a pitiable creature as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie just mixes it mixes your emotions together. I mean, almost like fusing them biologically or something. <laughs> it's, 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 such a, it's, a, it's such an experience in that way. But I'm saying a stalker would not work without that sound because it's not, uh, you know, Annihilation does present you with a lot of visual wonders and strangeness things that they discover along the way and 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 stalker is really relying really heavily on the the music especially to emphasize the alien quality of this place you know because otherwise in both cases they're just pieces of land (laughs) that have been transformed and so uh uh, so it's obvious through the eye that shimmer has been transforming i mean the whole thing just entering it you're like it's like yeah. entering a, a a soap bubble right yeah. and uh, there's like always that little prism uh gleam around the edges of the frame it's always yeah so i mean you know you there. know you're in a foreign place yeah. just you could turn the sound off and you know where you were but you turn the sound off in stalker you don't necessarily know that you're uh maybe until you get to closer to the room that you're in some place that's unearthly yeah, that's just a really basic connection between the the two films. I don't process Stalker as a horror film, but you know, it's it is really necessary to a horror film that you isolate the protagonists and put them beyond immediate or instant help. And in both cases, we have people who are moving outside the world, basically moving into places that are questionably allowable of human life or human identity. And there's kind of nobody else there with them. They're maybe unnatural creatures or there may be a dog. But either way, you know, as you say, they're they're in this hermetic space and making it sound different is kind of a rem- a constant reminder that we're we're outside the world. Well, I mean, with both these films, I th- I think they're they take viewers to spaces that they've never seen before and i think we are one of us with one seemingly small reservation that we just shrunk down to the size of a little tick over the <laughs> over this discussion we just argued her down tasha i'm turning your mic off um we, we love these movies so stalker is available on blu-ray and dvd via criterion and via various streaming services uh including uh, filmstruck which is where i think a lot of us watch it be sure to look for the most recent re- restoration which is uh gorgeous uh annihilation is still in theaters at least for the moment it's not doing that great guys and it's definitely one to see on the big screen, so be sure to seek it out. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films and film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put something interesting on your radar Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Uh, So by the time you hear this, we will already know which films won Oscars this year, but we're recording this in the lead-up to the Academy Awards, which includes one of the weirder feature animation nomination slates in recent memory. Um, I've already strongly recommended The Breadwinner on this show, and while I really loved Coco, I'm guessing you don't need my recommendation to seek that one out. Um, I'm willfully skipping over Ferdinand completely Mm -hmm. and choosing not to recommend Boss Baby. So that leaves the weird outlier that is Loving Vincent, a film I'm certain won't win the Oscar, nor do I think it should. But it is still notable and worth checking out if you care about animation, specifically animation that attempts to shake up the medium in some way. Uh, This film, directed by Dorada Kobiela and Hugh Welchman, is an anomaly, something that's never happened before in film, and I'm pretty sure will never happen again. Uh, It's the first fully hand-painted animated feature, comprising 65,000 individual hand-painted frames, 
oil painted frames, I should say, many of which directly replicate the paintings of Vincent van Gogh, who is the subject of the film. Admittedly, this film story is not half as interesting as the artistic impulse behind it. Uh, It follows an investigation into the days before Van Gogh killed himself that draws often too neat parallels between the artist's life and death and his most famous masterpieces. Then again, Van Gogh's work definitely had an autobiographical bent, so it's not as out of place here as it could have been with other subjects. Uh, But the real attraction, anyway, is the look of the film, which attempts to replicate the texture and dynamism of Van Gogh's canvases with some flourishes in the form of modern animation techniques. Uh, The effect is uneven, but ultimately compelling, I think, especially when it results in strange imagery like Van Gogh's famous bearded postman, but with the face of Chris O'Dowd, who voices that character in the film. It's an interesting film. Uh, I know that's not the most full-throated recommendation, but (laughs) like I said, um, it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in animation. It's like less than 90 minutes, so it's not a huge commitment. And it's playing in a few art houses around the country, and it's easily rentable on your Amazons, Googles, and, and so on. So, you know, if you have uh, 90 minutes to spend on a kind of a curiosity that will probably be forgotten in the annals of Oscar history pretty pretty quickly, yeah. uh, I would recommend it's better than Vincent. the Boss Baby. It is better than the Boss Baby. And I'm, I'm just going to say better than Ferdinand, even though I'm not going to see Ferdinand. Uh, probably better than Ferdinand. I have seen Ferdinand. <laughs> and I was surprised to see that one nominated at all. It's a weird animation slate. Mm-hmm. Tasha, what about you? Well, when we when I realized we were going to be discussing a couple of trippy intellectual science fiction movies that kind of blew our mind, my mind immediately went to Duncan Jones' Moon. Uh, Duncan Jones is the uh, writer-director of Moon Source Code uh, <laughs> Warcraft. It's kind of a kind of a step out for him. Um, and the new movie Mute, which is on Netflix and which is not exactly beloved of people, <laughs> but there is a gag in it that is only going to work for people who have seen Moon. I suspect that the vast majority of people who would listen to this podcast have already seen this movie because it's been recommended up one side and down the other by lovers of small, cerebral, interesting, quirky, unique science fiction and debuts and indie movies and small features and idiosyncratic cinema in general. Uh, I don't want to give too much of it away for those who haven't seen it, but uh, essentially it starts with uh, Sam Rockwell as a character in space um, who has a series of jobs to perform, which he does with the help of a robot uh, voiced by Kevin Spacey with only the ability to communicate uh, emotions via simple symbols, which is a really strangely effective and kind of emotional tool. And things fall out for him in a way that starts out as is kind of trippy in a 2001 A Space Odyssey kind of way. And then just from there gets steadily more interesting in a way that's a lot more modern, I think, in terms of exploring ideas of identity and responsibility and the evils of corporations and who we really are and what we can lay claim to as people. Again, how much can you say about this movie without saying anything about this movie? I think I might have to just leave it at, I highly recommend seeking it out. I think it remains his best movie uh, in a walk. Mm -hmm. And just one of my favorite science fiction movies that make you think really of all time. Yeah, I I heartily second that recommendation. I I love Moon. I I wish I had thought to recommend it (laughs) instead of I think I kind of (laughs) like. Well, you're going to have to see Mute then to see the 30 seconds of Moon reference that's in it. Uh, You don't want to see Mute. Do not see Mute. I mean... 
not even for the Paul Rudd of it all. Paul Rudd is quite good. Paul Rudd is fun. I think Paul Rudd plus 30 seconds of Moon reference is like enough to get me through Mew. You you know, no no way. It's such a good payoff for Moon, though. (laughs) It really is. Okay. Keith, what do you have? You know, this movie got me thinking about other films that kind of inspired uh, Annihilation and sort of the whole you know, world of sort of thoughtful science fiction that came out of and, and 1970s science fiction, which was, you know, Stalker is sort of a distant cousin of some of the other ones. But I think it's still part of that world, too. But to the long, long story short, the end of Annihilation really reminded me of this film called Phase 4 which is uh, Saul Bass designed many great posters and title sequences. Uh, it's a sole film as a director, and it's an odd film, uh, exceedingly odd film, that in broad strokes sounds like sort of a, a the Monsters Have Gone Amok movie. And in some ways, it, it is that. It, it is about a, a world in which super intelligent ants have, <laughs> have uh, sort of exerted their influence on the world. And it's not unlike uh, Annihilation or Stalker in some ways. And there's a lot of some sort of unexplained event that have sort of redone you know, the ants' behaviors. They start building these towers in the desert. Uh, and essentially, this team of scientists starts investigating them. Long story short, it doesn't necessarily go that well. It's full of all these like, sort of fascinating imagery of the ants. I mean, I mean Bass brings to bear his his talents as a graphic designer on those sequences. But got, what got me thinking about Annihilation is it has an ending that's very much reminiscent of the climax of Annihilation, which Phase 4 ends with this sort of one-minute, bizarre, 2001-inspired sequence that involves someone going down in a, in a hole in the ground, not unlike the end of Annihilation. The thing about that is, though, it was once a, about a four-minute, trippy, 2001-inspired uh, sequence that showed uh, what what you know the world to the ant's point of view. That's never been officially released. It screened at least once and there's a audience point of view uh, film of that on YouTube so if you look up phase four original ending you can talk you can see what I'm talking about but you should really see the whole film it's, it's quite good it's, it's on blu-ray from olive films here in Chicago and I'm sure it's streaming somewhere but uh, it's definitely an extremely interesting curio that could have paired yeah you know what you know I said a racist episode before erase it again <laughs> we're starting over we're gonna do phase four we're gonna we'll stay here all night <laughs> Well, uh, you should mention is. some of the Saul Bass title sequences too. Uh, he did uh, many of the great uh, Alfred Hitchcock, West, Vertigo, Psycho. He did, he did Scorsese, you know, a lot of Scorsese yeah. stuff, uh, uh, Cape Fear, Age of Innocence. He's uh, Casino. I think Casino might have been Casino his last says. one, actually. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, very distinctive. Um, very good. You know, if you saw it, or the one of the best. Mm-hmm. And it is, as you say. I mean, it's it. It looks like it's screening on all of the usual suspects for the usual like three or four bucks. But <laughs> looking it up online, I immediately run across the poster for it, which, in the way of uh, you know seventies inflected uh, films about future terror, is a little on the exploitative side. Uh, it, it pictures a an ant crawling out of the bloody hole in a man's hand and the line the day the earth was turned into a cemetery <laughs> ravenous invaders controlled by a terror out in space commanded to annihilate the world in all caps and well, with explanation make no mistake it's not entirely removed <laughs> from that genre of film it was the subject uh-huh. of an, a very early episode of mystery science theater 3000 oh wow uh, and it's and you know it probably works on those terms there's a lot of mst3k Often works best when there's a lot of dead space to fill, and it is a meditative film with a lot of dead space to fill. But no, I, I like it on its own terms, though. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, Scott, how about you? My favorite film, or I guess it would be experience that I had at True False, 
last year was uh, this movie called Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun by Travis Wilkerson. And um, at Sundance, where it premiered, and, and then at True False, what was interesting about it is that Wilkerson himself appeared on stage with his laptop and narrated the film. I mean, it's an assemblage, sort of ex- semi-experimental assemblage of home movies and snapshots and interstitials and all this other stuff, and then original footage of his travels to Alabama, uh, which is where he went to investigate a shameful chapter in his family history. Uh, his great-grandfather, a man named S.E. Branch, was a white grocery store proprietor from a town called Dothan, and he murdered a black man named Bill Spann in cold blood in 1946 and got away with it. And so Wilkerson kind of goes back to this chapter in his family history. And um, what's interesting, I mean, you know, I mean, it really feels the film itself just is an incredibly powerful tour through an American heart of darkness as far as race is concerned. But what's so powerful about the film is that he doesn't just want to incriminate his great grandfather for this act rooted in racial hatred, but he also sort of incriminates himself, too, for being part of of a family, one family that that effectively destroyed another. You know, you can visit his grandfather's grave and his, the tombstone is well tended, but finding Bill Spann's grave takes him on a, quite a different journey and trying to find his descendants takes him on quite a different journey. And, and uh, you really get a sense of this, you know, structural racism. And uh, it's a very powerful and very radical film. I mean, it really it has this very long, very fascinating critique of, to Kill a Mockingbird that kind of frames it. And it's just, it's a very exploratory film. It's a, it's an angry film. Um, it's a self lacerating film. And, uh, and I, I think it's, a, it's, it's just essential. It's opening in a very limited way in uh, New York and, and sort of expanding from there. Grasshopper films, uh, which is the distributor and the, the guy who started grasshopper films was behind the cinema guild. You know, they, they can't really distribute films too widely, but a lot of their stuff eventually winds up on streaming services. So, so if you can't see the movie in a major city, if you don't live in a major city, uh, then just keep it on some sort of a watch list and look for it to pop up later. I mean, it, it can't quite replicate the power of Wilkerson himself narrating it um, because he just asserts himself in a way that would be impossible in just a conventional documentary, but it comes really close, and uh, I really love it. It's, and I think it's going to be a, a film that would will probably stick around my top ten list. So uh, I would uh, recommend checking out. Did you wonder who fired the gun? And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out March 13th and 18th. Genevieve, what are we discussing? In the new indie thriller Thoroughbreds, Olivia Cook and Anya Taylor-Joy play two childhood friends in suburban Connecticut who reconnect as teenagers and enter into a deadly conspiracy. The film has been compared to Heather's, American Psycho, and Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. But since we just paired Hitchcock's Rebecca with Phantom Thread, we decided to look at one of Hitchcock's favorite movies, H.G. Clouseau's Diabolique. Like Thoroughbreds, Diabolique concerns a sinister partnership between two women who decide to kill the tyrannical man who's husband to one and lover to another. Their efforts lead to one of the all-time great movie shocks. So please join us next time for our Diabolique and Thoroughbreds pairing. And remember, the podcast that slays together stays together. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Stalker, Annihilation, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. 
Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, you can find my work at the culture section at Vox.com, and I'm on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in New York Times, Washington Post, uh, NPR, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Tasha? Uh, you can find my work at uh, TheVerge.com, where I'm the film and TV editor, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me at uprocks.com, where I'm also the film and TV editor there. You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. And you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast and to Delmark Records for providing recording space in their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.